Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Um, we are in the penultimate week of our series looking at the first letter of John. And it's a letter that is about love, hence we call it Summer of Love. And we've looked at the theme of love over a number of weeks now. And in particular, over the last couple of weeks, we've thought about uh, how love is embodied through our actions and the importance of us loving one another sacrificially. But in the chapter that we're going to look at today, chapter 4, John takes almost a step back and he asks, well, what even is love? How do we know what love is and where does it come from? We're going to read from 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. It will come up on the screen behind me. John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. This passage is undeniably about love. I mean, the whole letter is about love. But to put this in perspective, throughout this letter, John uses the word love 44 times, 22 of which are in that passage I just read. Literally half of the times John talks about love are in those few verses. And he talks about love in different forms, us loving God, God loving us, us loving one another. In 2012, apparently the most Googled question was, what is love? And if I were to ask you, I'm sure I'd get a whole load of different responses based on your experience, maybe your temperament, uh, maybe your, your professional background. And for many people, maybe for scientists, love is considered to be a neurological condition. It's something to do with the release of chemicals that either make you feel great or make you feel attachment and bonding. Maybe for the anthropologist, love is rooted in uh, kind of social customs and agreements, bargains of mutual benefit. Uh, Maybe for the evolutionist, love is primarily about self-preservation. It's about passing your genes on from one generation to the next. Some people just hold up their hands and go, I don't know what love is. It is a mystery. In fact, the great Benjamin Franklin said this. He said, love is changeable, transient, and accidental. (laughs) Romantic guy. Um, Founding father of the United States and occasional writer for Hallmark greeting cards. There you go. Um, (laughs) uh, What is love? Where does it come from? Well, John, actually, in this passage, he shows that it doesn't just come from chemicals or from soppy thoughts or even like self-preservation or social contracts. Rather, love is rooted ultimately in the person and work of God. 
This is what he says. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Love, he says, comes from the person of God. And why? Because God is love. Which is why John says that in a strange kind of way, if you know love, you know God. Now notice what he says. He says God is love. And I think it's important to notice he doesn't say God is loving. There is a huge difference between the two. Let me try and illustrate this. If I were to say to you that David is kind. David is a very kind person. I'm sure that you all, or at least 75% of you, would agree with that statement. And the reason is that you would think about David and what you know about him, and you'd think about kindness and what kindness looks like, and you'd say, yeah, I think Dave measures up to that standard of kindness, right? Do we all agree? (laughs) Oh, gosh, okay. Um, We got more of a resounding agreement when I did it with Tim Frisbee in the South, but there you go. If I were to say Dave is kind, I'm sure you would all agree that he measures up to the standard of kindness. However, if I were to say to you, David Stroud is kindness personified, I imagine you might be less sort of keen to agree wholeheartedly. Because what... In case you didn't notice, that was Andy who just, uh, just laughed at The reason being, David is generally kind. Of course, we know that from having spent time with him. But is he the standard of kindness? When you think of defining kindness, is it like, oh, yeah, David is the ultimate, 100% perfect, consistent embodiment of kindness? Well, probably not, like none of us are. Let's put it for God for a moment. If I were to say God is loving, you'd go, yeah, okay, I can see that. I mean, he does loving things, and I know what love looks like, and therefore God measures up to this standard of love. But that's not actually what John says. He doesn't say God is loving. He says God is love. And there's a huge difference there. Because he's not saying that there is this kind of uh, objective standard of what love looks like, and God happens to measure pretty well against it. Rather, he's saying God is the standard. And every other experience of love measures against him. He is love. Now, this is unique in the ancient world. Many of the uh, ancient uh, societies and civilizations had gods or goddesses of love. I mean, Rome and Greece, they had Aphrodite and Venus, and there were various others as well. But these people were not like the embodiment of love. Rather, they were kind of mediators of love. It's like they would go and get love and distribute it to humankind. John doesn't say that that's what our God does. It's not like he gets this gift of love from somewhere else and gives it to us. Rather, he is love. So when we experience his love, when love comes from God, it's like he's giving it to us out of his very nature and being. So according to John, he's saying, if you want to know what love looks like, look to God. Which sounds like a great thing to say, right? And that's a great, easy place to start with the sermon. However, he then goes and throws in a bit of a curveball, which I hadn't noticed. I've read these passages for years, and as I came to prepare it, I suddenly thought, that's a bit of a problem. Verse 12, he says this, No one has ever seen God. And so on the one hand, he's saying, If you want to know what love is, look at God. On the other hand, he's saying, No one has ever seen God. Which gives us a problem. Because if God is love, and we know love by looking at God and yet God is invisible, how on earth will we ever see love? The invisibility of God is a big problem. It's a big problem for John. Actually, I think it's always been a problem for Christianity and for Judaism. If you look at the Old Testament, we see it quite clearly. Israel worshipped this God who was invisible, who they believed was transcendent above everything else. 
And that was unique among the nations of the day. The other religions, the other nations would have gods that were very physical, very tangible. They would maybe worship the sun or the stars or the moon, or they would have these statues made of wood and gold and silver and bronze. And so they would say to Israel regularly, where is your God? I mean, we can see our gods here. I can pick it up and pass it to you. But we cannot, not that you do that with a God, but we can't see your God. Where is your God? Belief in a God of love is difficult when that God is invisible. And this particularly came to a head, I think, when Israel suffered crises. For example, if Israel lost a a war or were carried off into exile, the people would mock them and say, come on, where is your God? I mean, literally, here's our God. He's made of wood. He's in this temple. We can worship him. Where is your God? He's invisible. Is he even there? Belief in a God of love is tough when God remains invisible. And the invisibility of God, I think, remains a problem today. We may not worship sun or moon or stars or wooden or golden things, but actually we live in a world that values sort of tangibility. We are told to believe only in things that we can empirically test. And so the idea of an invisible God remains a problem. It particularly remains a problem when we see so much pain and hurt in the world. As we've already heard this morning, today is the 15th anniversary of 9-11. But that's not, of course, the only tragedy that has happened in the past 15 years. There have been so many tragedies, so many moments of hate and division and animosity. There have been wars and terrorist activity and the rise of extremist groups, suicide bombers in Europe and Syria and Lebanon and across the Middle East, across parts of Africa, the resulting refugee crisis, countless acts of violence against the LGBT community or against uh, racially motivated violence or uh, police brutality. We could go on and on and on. The world seems to be full of hate. And in a world where hate seems so visible and God is so invisible, the invisibility of love is a, of God is a huge problem. Where is love? How do we experience love? How do we experience God? In 2003, uh, the Black Eyed Peas released a famous song, I'm sure you all know it, um, Where is the Love, uh, which is kind of, uh, well, slightly cheesy, but a kind of modern-day lament on the state of the world. And it picks up on this kind of tension. We look around the world, where is love? I mean, we see so much hate. Hate is so visible, love seems invisible. But actually, of course, they released it in 2003. It didn't solve all the problems in the world. There have been many problems since, uh, as if the Black Eyed Peas could have done something about that. But we got to now, and the, the problems in the world have multiplied. Hate seems to have multiplied. And so this week, perfectly coordinated with my sermon, they re-released the song. Uh, they were going to do it a couple of weeks ago, but I did phone them up and, and convince them. Uh, and they were very kind. Uh, and so they re-released the song this week with some updated lyrics and um, just reflecting on how the world has changed since 2003. And I was listening to the song, actually while I was writing this part of the talk, um, strangely enough, because I'm a massive Black Eyed Peas fan, as you'd imagine, and um, I've regularly thought about restyling myself, L-I-Am. I'm not sure if that's going <laughs> to... What do you think? Yes, no? <laughs> a resounding no, a lot of shaking heads. Uh, no, I'm certainly not cool enough to pull it off. But um, there we go. And uh, so I was listening to the song, and two things stood out to me. One... In the new version of the song, they've changed lots of the lyrics. They've literally stolen a line from my sermon because they've literally lifted it out of today's passage. They say this, if you never know love, you will never know God. And the second thing is this, there is a tension that is central to the song, that is central to this passage and to the way that we see the world. 
which is this, we believe in a God of love, we talk about a God of love, but we look around and we don't see much love, and so the hatred that we see, which is so visible in the absence of an invisible God, makes us question, is there even any love? Is there any God at all? Let's just watch a clip from the video. Hopefully it's not too cheesy, but it's probably better than me actually singing it to you. Uh, Listen to the lyrics and see if you can kind of pick up the tension in the song. Let's roll the clip. Every time I look up, every time I look down, no one's on the common ground. And if you never speak truth, then you never know a love sound. And if you never know love, then you never know God. Where's the love? Where's the love, y'all? I don't, I don't. Love is the key, love is the solution, love is powerful. Yet, Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. Because people, the hatred I see that is so visible in the world has got me questioning, where is love? The invisibility of God is a huge problem when God himself is love. We need, as they sing, the Father to send some kind of guidance of above. Where is love? How can love be made visible? John says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John says love became visible when God himself took on flesh and walked this earth in the person of Jesus. Jesus is love made visible. And unlike all the other religions of the day, God, in physical form, is not made of wood or stone or rock. He's not made of gold or silver. How could he be and remain a God of love? Those things are inanimate. They cannot love. When God, the God who is love, stepped into this world, he came in the form of a physical, living, breathing, loving being. Jesus Christ is love made visible. And John says the ultimate demonstration of the love of God came at the cross where Jesus didn't simply love from afar. He didn't just give sympathy from afar through clicktivism and hashtags and nice feelings. Rather, he immersed himself fully into our world and in the most physical, practical way he could, he showed, I am humanity. He took all of mankind's brokenness and mess and frailty and failure and hatred and anger. He took it all upon himself at the cross. You want to know what love looks like? It looks like God on cross. The cross, according to John, is the answer to the problems of the world and the problem of the invisibility of God. Because at the cross, Jesus put himself in the place of the broken, the abused, the victim, the hated, and the hater. Jesus took upon himself all the brokenness of the world and everything we have ever done to contribute to that. From the extremities of hatred that leads to violence and terror right down to the little seeds of hatred in my heart and in yours, of jealousy, of greed, of anger, of lust. Jesus took it all upon himself 
And at the cross, he, em- he embodied humanity at its worst and dealt with the consequences so that it is done. It is gone. The cross is the greatest demonstration of God's love. That's what love looks like. Dying not just for good people, but to redeem both the hated and the hater, the terrorist, the angry person, the violent, the wicked, the thief, the liar, the cheater, and me and you. John says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God. I mean, who of us have loved God as consistently and as purely as we should? This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The cross is love made visible. It's through the cross that we see the love of God, and we get to enjoy life in all its fullness. And John uses that phrase, the one and only son. Actually, the Greek word is, is monogenes, which is often translated as firstborn. If you know your Old Testament, the firstborn child in the family was the most prized, the most precious, the one who got to inherit everything else, the one you would protect at all costs. The firstborn was the most loved, the most prized one. In fact, I regularly tell my younger siblings, they don't like that. <laughs> The firstborn son was the most precious thing that God had, and he gave him up for us. That's love. Actually, it's a rich word. Monogenes, take it, break it in two. Mono means one. Genes sort of comes like genus, genus, kind, species, these sorts of words. That's where we get it from. He is the one of a kind son of God. God gave up his most precious, prized, unique, one-of-a-kind son so that we might become children of God. That, that is love. Actually, in the previous chapter, John says this, See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Actually, that phrase, what kind of love, literally translates as from what country, which makes it a slightly confusing sentence. But essentially what it's saying is this. When you see the love of God at the cross, it's like you don't recognize it. You say, I've never seen this in our country, in our world. It's literally an otherworldly love. It's a love like you cannot experience in any other part of this world. See what otherworldly love God has shown us he sent his one-of-a-kind, most precious, prized son to die. Why? So that we might live and we might become children of God. Maybe you don't know God today. Maybe you question the idea of whether there is a God of love. Or if there is a God, is he really love? Maybe you question the idea that he could ever love you. Actually, John says, look to the cross. Because when we look at the cross, we see the love of God made visible in the most powerful way. God gave up his most prized, most precious, one-of-a-kind son so that we might become sons and daughters of God. And John continues, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. Here's the logic. If at the cross... Jesus has taken upon himself not only the brokenness of the world, but the punishment for everything we have ever done to contribute to that. And if he has dealt with that, there is now no punishment. And if fear has to do with punishment and punishment is gone, there is no place for fear for those of us who respond to the love of God. So the invitation from John is this, look to the cross. There you see love made visible. And if you respond to that act of love, you can become a child of God. You can know relationship with your Father now and into eternity. Fear banished, forgiveness available, 
life abundant. How do we know the love of God? Jesus is love made visible. And if you'd like to talk to someone about that today, if you've got questions, we would love to talk with you, help you in any way you can. Come and talk to me or any of the leaders you've seen here or get involved in one of our midweek groups, our connect groups. They're great ways to find out more about God's love and ask your questions. We'd love to help you. But actually, would it surprise you if I told you that God's love at the cross is only half of the story? You probably wouldn't because you know we've got another 15 minutes of the sermon to go, so I kind of gave that away. But um, would it surprise you if I told you that God's love was actually incomplete at the cross? I mean, that might sound like an odd, maybe even blasphemous thing to say. Actually, I think that's exactly what John says here, that God's love was somehow incomplete at the cross. And the reason I mean that is, is because the invisibility of God was a huge problem for thousands of years. And then you get 33 years within history where God is visible in the person of Jesus. You could touch him, hear him, talk to him, interact with him. But then he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, invisible again. <laughs> and that's a problem. The invisibility of God remains a problem. I look around this world and again I see hate and pain and hurt is so visible and God who is love seems so invisible. So the invisibility of God remains an issue. How does that get resolved? John says this. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. God's love, ultimately shown through the cross, gets made complete. It finds its fulfillment when we love one another, when we become love made visible. And since God dwells in us, when someone encounters love, through one of us, it's like they encounter something of that love that Jesus showed us at the cross. So when we look around this world and we see so much hate and hurt and pain and division, and we are tempted to ask, where is the love? Where is God? John's answer is, he's there through you. His love is available through you. You are love made visible. Why? Because he lives within you. And when we love, his love is made complete. One of the Pictures that the New Testament often uses to describe both individual believers, followers of Jesus, but more importantly, the whole connected community of the church is that we are the body of Christ. I think that's a really powerful picture because it means that we are like the physical bit of Jesus that people get to interact with. I mean, you want to see God, you want to see him in physical form, you want to see his body, right? And you can feel like, well, God's invisible. No, his body is here. You can reach out and touch God in some sense because his body remains on the earth. We are the body of Christ. The 16th century nun, Teresa of Avila, puts it like this. Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ must look out on the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless his people. We are the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of God in this earth. We are the ones through whom he interacts with this world and makes his love visible. We make love visible. We are like Jesus in this world. That is why we think it's important that the church should be known supremely for embodying love through practical ways. It's why we do care very much about the spiritual renewal of our city, people getting to know their creator, but we don't just care about that. We care about the social and cultural renewal of our city. Why? Because we want to embody love. 
I think the church should be known for standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves. The church should be known for being a voice for the voiceless. The church should be known for reconciling groups that no one else can reconcile. Why? Because we are the hands and feet. We are the body of Christ. That's why we invest time and energy and money in projects that make a difference in our city, that make it a better place. That's why we care about running a food bank in Vauxhall to provide food, physical food, for people who have physical needs. Why? Because love needs to be made visible. It's why we run a football project with uh, youth in the south of London. It's why we do mentoring, educational mentoring for refugees in Lambeth. It's why we work with the homeless in Tower Hamlets. It's why, as we've heard this morning, we partner with charities who can do things that we can't quite literally do ourselves. It's why we partner with International Justice Mission, working across the world to bring freedom and healing for those in hurt. It's why we care about adopting vulnerable children and supporting Home for Good and many other things as well. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. We're his hands, we're his feet. The fourth century theologian Augustine put it like this. Let us rejoice then and give thanks that we have become not only Christians, but Christ himself. Marvel and rejoice, we have become Christ. I remember like I read that. The first time I read that, I thought, Augustine, you are off your rocker. That is insane. That is blasphemous. I have become Christ. No, I, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I am not Christ. But I think he's tapping into something that John himself says. We are essentially like Christ. We are his body. We're as close as people are going to get to encountering the literal Jesus. John says it himself. He says, in this world, we are like Jesus. Have you ever thought of it like that? You are, in some sort of weird sense, love made visible. You are Jesus. Have you ever thought about the fact that if you are a follower of Jesus, you may be the closest thing to Jesus that your friends, family, fellow students, colleagues may ever encounter? In this world, in your world, you are like Jesus. I've got many friends who are skeptical about Christianity and I've often thought, I really wish they could just spend an hour with Jesus. Like, I'm pretty sure if I took my most skeptical friend and just invited him to have coffee with Jesus for an hour, (laughs) that would cut through a whole load of his objections. Why? Because you get to hear from Jesus and experience from him literally what he is all about. And some of the things they think Christianity is about and some of the awful things that have been done by Christians in the name of Christianity, I'm sure they would just fade away if you spent time with Jesus himself. If only you could actually spend an hour having coffee with Jesus, I'm sure that would change the most hardened skeptic of my friends. It would be an amazing experience. John says, actually, you can, in a weird kind of way. Why? In this world, we are like Jesus. We are his hands and his feet. So does the way that you live and the way that you love make his love visible? It should be the case, according to John, that if God lives in us and people encounter us, they encounter something of the love of God. How are you doing at this? How are you embodying God's love to the people you live around, the people you work around? Now you may say to me, Liam, you do not know my neighbor. I am unfortunate enough to live next door to Joel Nazar. You might say that to me. (laughs) In which case, uh, I would say to you, yeah, okay, everything I said, you can disregard that. But to the rest of you, (laughs) no, I'm kidding. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, actually, no one is beyond our love. C.S. Lewis says, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Simply act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. 
think he's right. As we love one another, we do so not because they are loving, or even because we, oh sorry, they are lovable, or even because we are loving. We love, why? Because we know what it's like to be loved. We have been first loved by God, and that is why we love one another. And if we don't feel like we love one another, we act as if we did. And what we find is the way when we act like Jesus would, we start to become more like him. We genuinely do feel love towards one another. Let me give you uh, an example, and it's an example from my own life, and um, I should say, like, whenever I share examples from my own life, it feels slightly like I'm holding myself up as this example of godliness and love, and, and so if you get to the end of the story and you think, wow, Liam is an incredible loving person, please do talk to anyone who knows me and they will correct that misapprehension. Uh, this is one of the, maybe the only time I've got it right, I don't know. But um, after university, I got a job uh, working in an office dealing with people's bankruptcy cases, which, as you can imagine, was my dream job, and... Um, uh, after having done it for a couple of months, I uh, got a promotion along with a bunch of other people, and uh, with that came you know, more responsibility, higher salary, but also being moved to a different part of the office. And I remember talking it through with the guys, and the day came when we were going to move to our new seats, and everyone was eager to find out where they would sit, and it became apparent that one of us was going to have to sit next to a lady named Brenda. Now, um, <laughs> I thought about changing her name and going, uh, we'll call her Margaret for the sake of the talk. But last time I did that in a talk, I then forgot halfway through and used their proper name. So I'm just going to go with Brenda and uh, hope she never listens to this podcast. Brenda was not very popular. Um, she was the oldest and oddest member of the team. She had a reputation for being cantankerous and, and just really moaning all the time and having odd habits and just being hard to get on with. And people were complaining about the prospect of having to sit next to this lady called Brenda. And uh, we were talking about it and it just got pretty unpleasant, to be honest. And I remember at one point, I was the youngest guy on the team by a long way. And all these older guys just moaning and moaning and moaning. And one of them uh, just said, look, this is meant to be a promotion. I would rather keep my old job and less money than have to sit next to Brenda. And at that point, I was like, this is not nice. This is unpleasant. And so I said, look, guys, I will sit next to Brenda. And what I really hoped would happen was that they would just wake up to their pettiness and go, man, that's actually, that's, that's really kind. No, I'll sit next to Brenda. They didn't. So I ended up sitting next to Brenda. And you know what I found? I found that everything everyone had said about her, about her being strange and miserable and hard to get on with and having odd habits, all of that stuff was completely and utterly true. She was weird. She was hard to get on with. I didn't naturally click with her and everyone thought it was hilarious that I was sitting next to her. But here's what I did. I thought, you know what? I'm weird as well. And there are people who probably think about me the same way these people think about Brenda. And she is just as deserving as love as anyone else. And so I thought, you know what? She may have no other Christians in her world. I might literally be the only Christ follower who she knows. I don't know that. So I am going to decide for the good of Brenda and the good of this office that I am going to try my best to be like Jesus to her. And it was simple. Like all I did was I was nice to her. I mean, that's hard for me, but simple for most people. I was just nice to her. I asked her questions. Like I asked her about her family. I tried to remember things she said. I just asked her about her story. Uh, people never used to invite her out for drinks or for lunch and they would all just go and sort of hope Brenda wouldn't notice. And I was like, I'm not going to let that happen. So I made sure that Brenda came with me. I would walk her to the pub and I would spend time with her. And what I found over time was that people noticed the difference. When she moaned about things, I sometimes actually had very good reasons for moaning. And I listened to her and she felt listened to. She felt heard. Sometimes she had no good reason for moaning, and I helped her to see a positive side of things. And over time, people commented, Brenda seems a bit different. And rather than running out and leaving her there, they actually started inviting her to the pub of her own accord, which I thought was great. 
My favorite part of the story came actually my final day at the office. I'd been working there for a few years. My final day, it was like the culmination of it all. It was beautiful. It was our Christmas party and we did Secret Santa. And of course, everyone picked out the names of the hat of the people they wanted to buy presents for. And the day we'd picked out the names of the hat, I bumped into this guy at lunchtime. He looked really miserable. And I was like, what's, what's up? What's up with you? He went, I got Brenda. <laughs> I don't want to buy a present for Brenda. And he was really angry. And I thought, I know what I can do here. I said, you know what? I think I probably know Brenda really well, actually. I've sat next to her months now. I reckon I could get her a gift she'd really like. And so the guy was a bit confused, but we swapped. And so I got the bit of paper with Brenda and he got someone else. And uh, so I went away and I thought about it and I bought her a present that I thought she would like for the princely sum of five pounds or whatever it was and uh, I thought about it and I bought her something and then the day came around my last day Christmas party and this guy was like drawing the things out of this bag and everyone had to come and open it in front of everyone else and he drew out the present with Brenda's name on and she came up to the front and she opened the present and she uttered the words I don't think have ever been said in the history of Secret Santa which was this is exactly what I wanted and she smiled like I'd never seen her smile. And there was something in that moment like she was transformed because she knew that she was known and loved. Now, I hadn't laid down my life for her. I'd simply shown her some common decency. And love made a huge difference. I like to think she encountered something of the love of God. Actually, my favorite bit of the story is this. The guy then reached into the bag, pulled out a next gift. It also had Brenda's name on it. And the guy who I'd swapped with had completely forgotten that we'd swapped. And so Brenda got two gifts and someone else got no gifts. <laughs> but in a weird kind of way, that's sort of what happens with love though, isn't it? Like when you love, it multiplies. I mean, we think that hate multiplies. Love multiplies way more, way faster, way stronger. And she literally got double the blessing to everyone else. Why? Simply because I just was trying to be nice to her. I tried to be like Jesus to her. Again, to be clear, not because I am naturally loving and not because she was naturally lovable. I am not, she was not. But rather, I know what it's like to be loved when you're not lovable. Because I've experienced that from God. And so I wanted to be like Jesus to her. Who is the Brenda in your world? Who are the people in your office, in your workplace, in your university, in your neighborhood, in your family? Who are the people in this church who who need something of love, who you can make love visible to by the way that you serve them, the way that you talk to them. We are the body of Christ. We are his hands and his feet. And if the idea of being like Jesus to those around us just sounds difficult, well, it is. <laughs> but John says this, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. When we respond to the love of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God comes and dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. And so if you think, I don't have it in me to love that person, you literally have it in you because God dwells within you by the Holy Spirit. And if you struggle, you just ask, Lord, would you fill me afresh with more of your spirit to make me more like you? That's a prayer he would love to answer. Maybe the band can come back up. In a moment, we're going to sing a song of celebration celebrating the love that God has shown us through the cross. But then I'd also like us to have a moment to respond. If you would like to respond particularly personally, if you would like prayer today, there'll be a prayer team available at the end who would happily pray with you. But I'd like us to do something together if that's okay. In a moment, I'll get them to put um, a prayer on the screen. It's over two slides. Uh, and it's a famous prayer called the Prayer of St. Francis. And it essentially says, God, I want to be your hands and feet. Would you make me a vessel, an instrument of your love to this world? 
And so I'll invite us in a moment to stand and to pray this. If you feel like, I don't want to pray that, I'm not sure I believe that, that's totally fine. But why don't you take a moment to reflect on the words, to think about some of the stuff we've talked about today. We'll pray that together, and then I'd like to give us a moment of just silence as we wait on God. And it may be that during that time you want to think about something I've said, or you may want to think, who are the Brenners in my world? Who are the people I can make love visible to this week? Or it may be that you need to say, Holy Spirit, would you just fill me afresh? I need more of an experience of your love. Would you fill me and empower me to be like Jesus in this world? Why don't we stand? Let's pray this prayer together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying to self that we are born to eternal life. Let's just take a moment to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.